I'm the guy that needs to turn his microphone on. There's a guy named James K.A. Smith, who I think is really one of the most important philosophical and theological writers and speakers who's thinking about where the church is headed. Um, and he spends a lot of time talking about a compulsive Christianity versus a voluntary Christianity. And, and, and to Dennis's point, one of the questions that he asks uh, in various many ways in his books and talks is which is better, to have a Christianity that everybody believes in, but nobody gives it much thought. It's just the default. Um, but everyone believes in it. Everyone believes in it, but it's just kind of there. Or is it better to have a Christianity that very few people believe in, but the ones who do choose it with great thought, counting the cost, and with incredible intentionality? And that's a difficult question. And it's an important question to ask because the reality is that we live in a country that is living in between those two moments. We live in a country where if we look back into the past, admitting that America has never been perfect, no country ever has, the kingdom of God is striving towards it, but admitting the difficulties of the past, uh, America historically has been a country where everyone claimed to be some kind of Christian without giving it much thought. You just were. And yet we're moving towards a country where very few people claim to be Christian, but they do so at great cost and with great intentionality and with great thought. Is that good news or bad news? Well, we'll find out, right? There's a lot of us that lament and grieve over what is lost, and there's some who look forward to what is coming. Um, I, for what it's worth, my personal bias is I think that even as the church gets smaller, there's good days ahead. That's my bias. I think that God has always done incredible things with a few faithful. Uh, and that's often where transformation and hope lies. And, and so I'm not afraid of the future, which is not to say that it's all going to be good, but I'm not afraid of it. And, and I think that God is going to be faithful. I think he has been faithful in the past. I think he will be faithful in in the future. And so it's in the midst of kind of that cultural transition that we're living in today. And, and the reality is that we're probably much farther down the road than I'm kind of presenting so far. Um, but there's, that's where we're headed. Uh, as we talk about that and think about that, we've really this month been thinking about what it means to be people that are rooted in the gospel. Because if we're going to be people that are a few that are living our Christianity out very faithfully in a world that's not as Christian as it used to be, then we're going to need to really be anchored in the gospel. It's like Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that, that when the storms come, if your house is built on the foundation of a rock, which is being rooted in the teachings, not just hearing them and believing them, but living out the teachings that Jesus has given us, if you do that, the storms won't knock you down. And so that's the kind of gospel-rooted faith that we need. And so the question comes up, what is the good news? Because the reality is that, that not all of this book is gospel. It has some connection to it. It gives some background to it. It gives hope as a result of it. But the gospel, boiled down, is a smaller part of this larger story. And so we've been exploring what gospel looks like. And we started by asking, if you have a people who are rooted in the gospel, how do you know it? Because you can't know it just by their success, because you can grow a church that's not rooted in anything and get big and look awesome. You can do that. Uh, and it's not just by saying we're faithful. 
because faith without deeds is dead. And so you need a, a type of living out of being a gospel person, family, and church that is demonstrated by fruitfulness. It produces things. Certainly conversation, conversions, but not only conversions. It also produces inner growth. It produces the character of God inside of people because the Spirit is giving them the fruit of the Spirit. It produces a community of people that individually and collectively begin shaping the world to look more like what God wants the world to look like. That's a fruitful, gospel-centered church. We want to strive towards that. And Nathan did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about how, how this kind of fruitful gospel is effective in the same way that a, a fruit on a tree is effective. Because it is appealing to the eye and it tastes good to animals, they come and they eat it. And in the midst of partaking that which is good and beautiful and delicious in the fruit, the seed is spread and greater growth happens. And the same thing happens in the church. That when the church takes on the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that the world will come up and say, boy, while I think that your faith is foolish, I can't argue that it's bad. There is something about it that is good and appealing and beautiful. And we're able to, when we're able to live that kind of good lives among the pagans, they can come to give God glory on the day that He returns because of what they saw in us. And that's the beauty of fruitful gospel obedience. And we move from there, we continue to talk about the gospel story and how it matters. And so last week we talked about the four chapters of the gospel story. If we boil the whole thing down to four parts, what are the four parts that you need to cover when you tell someone, this is the good news of Jesus Christ? Do we need to cover all the Psalms? Do we need to get into the book of Job? Do they need to be able to, to understand what Revelation is about? I hope not. Very few of us fully do. What do they need? And here's what they need. Four chapters of the gospel story. Number one, God created us relationally. He desired when he created us to have a loving and caring relationship with us. He didn't want to just be Lord. He wanted to be Father. Jesus didn't just come to be Savior, He came to be brother. And so as Jesus brings this, this gospel to us, we need it because the world is now broken. That's chapter 2. Chapter 1, God created us relationally. Chapter 2 is that the world is broken because of sin and things aren't the way they were supposed to be. When we look around at the world that we live in today, it's clear that things are broken. They're still breaking. God didn't intend to leave them broken. There's a plan to fix it all and to set it all right. And that plan is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be born and that He would live among us and that He would teach us what it means to be kingdom people. And then in the midst of that, He would give His life so that we might be saved. And in the process of giving His life, He not only saves us, but He brings hope to the entire world that all is going to be restored. God created us relationally. Things are broken because of sin. Jesus came and started to fix and restore and save everything. And the fourth part of the gospel story is this, is that you may now respond to that story by being saved yourself. 
that salvation is free and it's available to you if you will only receive it. And those four chapters, simply boiled down, are the gospel message. That's the good news. And it has to answer however we present it in every single season. And, and the reality is that when you talk about presenting those four chapters, there are an unlimited number of ways you can tell the story of the good news using this book. It tells it in so many ways. You can tell it using Moses and the prophets. You can tell it using the Exodus story. That's why Jesus, when he tells his apostles that they're going to take communion from now on, anchors it to the Exodus. The Exodus story tells the story of the gospel. The prophets tell the story of the gospel. We see that the prodigal son, that one parable can tell the story of the gospel. And so over and over again, there's so many different ways in Scripture for the story of the good news to be told. There's so many different flavors and approaches and methods, but it's got to tell those four chapters, and it has to answer two questions. And the two questions are this. Question number one, what must I do to be saved? If your presentation of the gospel does not tell the person who's listening what they must do to be saved, then you're not telling them the good news. And the second thing is this, and, and, and maybe this is the one that gets overlooked the most, is what hope then is there for the world? Because our proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ can't just be about individual and personal salvation. It has always got to tell people that there is hope for the whole world, that the creation, for good reason, has been awaiting an eager expectation for the revealing of the glory of the children of God, that we bring hope to the world because of the good news that we have, that God has given us, that the Spirit speaks through us, that we become Jesus, the hands of Jesus, the feet of Jesus, the mouth of Jesus, and the heart of Jesus that tells the world who God is, lets them know what He looks like. All right, so that's where we've been. It's a lot of review, but I don't know where everyone's been for the last couple of weeks, and so we're catching everyone up today. That's where we've been, and it never hurts to hear the gospel again, right? So that's where we've been. So today what we're doing is uh, looking at the fact that there are two enemies of the gospel that exist among the people of God, and there always have been and there always will be. And when I say that there are enemies of the gospel, I'm not talking about in the world. And so when I talk about these two enemies of the gospel, I'm talking about in the synagogues of the Old Testament. I'm talking about in the church of today, and we read about it in the gospels that tell the story of Jesus. That there are two enemies that stand in opposition, and they're pulling the gospel in totally different directions that want to always pull the gospel out of where it belongs. And again, I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about atheism. I'm not talking about immorality. I'm not talking about secular leaders that want their own power. I'm not talking about uh, idolatry in the world. I'm not talking about any of that. Are those in opposition to the gospel? Sure. But we're in the family of God, and we need to make sure we understand our enemies of the gospel if we're going to live it in a way that starts to speak meaningfully to those outside of our people, outside of our family. And so the first enemy is this. The first one is legalism. Legalism uh, has the idea that if you're good enough, good things will happen to you because God is pleased with you. And if you're bad enough, bad things will happen to you because God is displeased with you. And everything else can be explained by that. 
And that that creeps into every type of, of following of God in history is important for us to realize. Because that temptation for us to move over into legalism and, and moralism and say, if you're just a good enough, moral enough, does what you're supposed to enough person, God will take care of the rest. And that it's all about our acts of self-righteousness. And, and when the gospel moves in that direction, it fails to be the gospel. Because you have to remember that one of the things that we learn about when we talk about the gospel is that we're not saved by our right actions, that only Jesus becoming a man and dying on the cross and resurrecting can save us. When we move into legalism and moralism, we start to deny that and start to claim that it's our own goodness that warrants our blessing and salvation. That's a problem. It's a problem. So we've got the problem of moralism and legalism over here. At the same time over here, we have the problem of moral relativism. I can't tell you that you're wrong, and you can't tell me that I'm wrong, and if we all come together and, and decide, you know what, this thing's not that big of a deal, uh, then it's not that big of a deal. And if you think it is and I think it isn't, well, then, you, you know, you can't tell me. You can't judge me. You can't critique me. And so often it even evolves not even into a logical discussion about right and wrong, but into a, this feels right to me. This seems and appears right to me, therefore it is right to me. And if you disagree, that's okay. That seems and appears right to you. It's all relative. It's all individual. It's not anchored to the gospel anymore. And so when you get into relativism, you have a problem that when you get to the chapter of the gospel that deals to the brokenness because of sin, is that there's a problem in relativism of even identifying that sin exists or that it has consequences. Or that you even need a Savior, because if we all feel good about one another and what we do and the choices we make, who needs a Savior after all? We're all really in pretty good shape. So relativism will always pull the gospel into something that it shouldn't be. Moralism and legalism will always pull the gospel into something that it shouldn't be. And in every one of our lives and in every one of our churches, there is this constant pulling of the gospel into these two extremes that it should not go into either one of. Jesus is dealing with this throughout his entire ministry. Jesus has a time that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are trying to trap him. And so in John chapter 8, they find this woman who's caught in adultery. And they've all got all these rocks and stones. And they bring this woman in front of Jesus and they throw her at his feet. And they say, Jesus, Jesus, teacher, tell us, what should happen to this woman? The law requires that she be stoned to death. What do you say? And they're trying to catch him in one of these two false understandings of the good news. Will he choose moralism and legalism and say she sinned, there's a consequence, she has to pay for it, uh, where's the, give me a rock. Give me a rock. I stand on the truth of morality and rules. That's what my religion is based on. See, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees know that Jesus doesn't act that way or teach that way. And he's got this big following of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and all kinds of people living all kinds of lives. And if he, like them, moves into legalism and moralism, he'll not only lose his followers, but his credibility. And they can say, see, we told you he wasn't what he said he was. On the other hand, the other side of this trap is that Jesus will see this woman. And, and what he'll say is, guys, it, she's 
following her heart. She's doing what seemed right to her. You don't know her circumstances. Her husband may be a real jerk. Maybe she's right to be having this affair. Maybe this is the, the right thing for her. And just because it's not right for you, maybe it's right for her. You can't judge her. And, and Jesus could in that moment say, I completely dismiss all charges against her. I'm not going to hold her responsible for her actions. Uh, who's to say she's wrong? Relativism. And if he had done that, then they could have stood up and easily said, this man does not believe in the law of God. He's not someone that believes that God's justice is good. Because the reality is that woman did sin. She broke covenant with God and her husband. That woman is going to have some consequences to pay if she's going to get her life right. But it's not going to be at the hands of an angry mob. So Jesus, instead of moving into legalism or instead of moving into relativism, does the incredible thing of proclaiming the gospel. We're all lost and broken. We all need the forgiveness that this woman needs right now. And so he says, let you who has no sin cast the first stone. And the older people who are wiser and are more aware of their shortfallings drop their stones and walk away first. And the young people who are often more willing to join a mob leave last. And if the story ended there, then Jesus has bought into relativism to some extent. But Jesus looks to the woman and he says, Woman, who is here to judge you? Who remains to condemn you? She says, No one, sir. He says, Neither do I. Now go and quit sinning. And then Jesus is proclaiming gospel. God created you out of a desire for relationship and covenant. You threw it away because of sin. There's consequences for that. But now I'm here to restore and make things right so that you can receive the gospel and live a life that is worthy of the gospel. So go and honor your covenants and quit sinning. He walks the line so beautifully between the things that are trying to trap him and the things that pull him in either one of these directions. And Satan knows that these traps are effective. And so he's constantly surrounding the people of God with a desire to move into either one of those directions, knowing that we lose the gospel when we do. And so Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, he, said, he stands up and he proclaims, oh, I want to actually read this one. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to the brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? The relativists hear this story and they say, we knew it. Jesus says, don't judge other people. Don't condemn other people. You've all got planks in your eyes. So quit bothering me about the speck in mine. But Jesus is, of course, always waiting to push against relativism. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
See, the moralist is over here all the time ignoring the problems in their own life and the, and the, the, the plank in their eye while they're going around and looking for specks in everybody else's. I see your problems. I see your sins. I see your mistakes. You're going through a tough time. It's your fault. Jesus says, no, no, that's not gospel. Gospel is, is here. Gospel is do the work on yourself so that you can then have credibility to go help others. Walk the difficult walk of getting yourself right so that when someone else needs to get themselves right, you can then go walk with them with a clean conscience. You don't have to wait till you're perfect moralist. You don't have to overlook other people's sins, relativist. You deal with your stuff to get right with God because we're all broken and Jesus came to set it right so that we might be saved and walk this gospel way. Over and over again. Someone comes up to Jesus and says, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven? And he goes, no, 77. Oh, he's a relativist. He says, but if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. That sounds like a moralist. It's because Jesus is constantly having to battle with these two opposing forces that exist in his world and exist in our world, and he never goes and parks his bus in either one. He never sets up camp in either one. He's constantly pushing against them and seeking this good news way that sits in the middle. And it's rooted in God's creating us relationally, our brokenness because of our sin, our need for Jesus to be the one that saves us so that we might then be saved and live that way. And resist all the other influences. And it changes how we tell people the story. It changes how we interact with people who are not among us. Because of this, Jesus had the incredible ability. It's unbelievable to draw sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, people that would never hang out with the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin or the, the teachers of the law. They did not like being around those people that looked down their noses all, at them all the time. That, that looked at them and said, you're the people that are the problem." You're the people that, I, that we judge, and, and, and they're the moralists who say, you're disgusting all the time. Jesus eats with those people all the time. And what's even more incredible is they enjoy eating with him. Jesus has this ability to interact with people that are broken, beat up, and making bad choices. And at the same time, he never compromises, never compromises his righteousness. He never compromises the truth of what God says is right or wrong. The prostitutes who are hanging out with Jesus don't leave like relativists who leave and go home and say, I just spent my whole day with Jesus, this rabbi who said that I'm fine doing anything I want outside of a covenant of marriage. The tax collectors didn't leave saying, Jesus is really proud of me and all the decisions I've made to take advantage of my own people. Zacchaeus does the opposite, spends one meal with Jesus and starts paying back in, in duplicate, triplicate, many times over what, what he owed other people that he had taken wrongfully. And he does it because he's not a moralist and he's not a relativist, but he's a proclaimer of the good news. And it's his good news. And the good news is this, that there is nobody who is not in need of a Savior. And so how can you look down at other people who need Jesus when you need him too? And the message is that, that when Jesus came and saved us, it's not by our good actions, and it's not so that you can go live a wild and crazy life. He came and saved you so that you might become someone who does your very best to live the good news gospel way that he lived. 
Now go and sin no more. And we don't become perfect, but we're doing our very best to walk in this path that Jesus walked so that we could follow him and we can invite others to follow us, not looking down at them and condemning them and judging them, not falling into the traps that, that we so often fall into that Jesus always resisted. It's not an easy thing to do. And so when it creeps into the church, here's some of the ways that it shows up. When a Christian comes across someone who is discouraged and depressed, if you fall into moralism, what happens is that you will go up to them and you will tell them uh, things are going badly for you because you're breaking some rules. I don't know what they are, but it's your fault clearly that you feel bad. You need to stop sinning, repent, and God will help you feel better. That's the moralist. The relativist goes and tells them, if you just accept your emotions and what you're struggling against, uh, you're going to feel better about yourself. You don't have to worry about anything you may have done wrong. Uh, just own it. Own your problems. Uh, celebrate them, and you can feel better. But the gospel way, assuming that the depression is not caused, caused by a physio physiological or psychological need that needs to be addressed, but if it's just a result of the, the life that you're living and the world that you're in, uh, the gospel way is to say there's probably something in your life that's become an idol and that you're worshiping more than God. It's probably causing you some inner problems. And we need to explore that. Because if you can rightly orient your heart to God's heart and deal with the idols, you're going to have some better things going on in your life. Let's get you rightly oriented to the gospel. When people are dealing with areas of love and relationships, moralism causes people to blame themselves or others for broken relationships. This leads to all kinds of self-image problems and self-value issues and codependency, the belief that you must save yourself by saving others in relationships and in your family. Whereas relativism releases love to a negotiated partnership for mutual benefit. Yes, I love you with all my heart until it's not fun anymore. Until it's no longer beneficial or good for me or no longer beneficial or good for you. And then we'll part ways and, and that'll feel better. That there's not the, the morality of God to anchor us into relationship in a way that honors commitment and covenant. That moralism just blames and that relativism just excuses. But the gospel instead says, why don't you recognize that you're called to commitment and covenant to one another and then willingly make incredible sacrifices. To, like Jesus made for us. It's the gospel. He died so that we could be saved. In your relationship, what do you need to sacrifice so that the relationship can grow and thrive in healthy ways? Not codependent, not trying to earn love, but in ways that say, I'm going to put you first so that we might grow together. It's a totally different gospel way of doing relationships. When it comes to the issue of, of sexuality. The moralist views sexuality as dirty or at least a dangerous impulse that leads to sin. The relativist sees it as a biological and physical desire and whatever impulse you have, you should just chase it and don't feel bad. It's good. It's given to you. It's natural. But the gospel way says Jesus gave us all of himself. 
not just his body, he gave us his heart, his commitment, his devotion. And so when we talk about sexuality, it's a, a corruption of the gospel when we only give someone our body without giving them our commitment legally, emotionally, physically, in marriage relationships for the lifetime. That's what God's calling us to do. And it's not because we're moralists and we're saying, oh, thou shalt not. And it's not because we're relativists saying this is a good and better way that feels better. It's because the gospel way is for Jesus to give his whole self so that we might become in this covenant relationship with God. That's what marriage is. It's this call to have a gospel kind of relationship with one person where you give them and exclusively them all of you for life. Our world today says just give part of you and that's enough because the rest is too risky. Sleep with whoever, live with whoever, don't give them all of yourselves. There's too much risk in that. Go tell Jesus who died on the cross that there's too much risk in making sacrifices for relationship. When we resist moralism and we resist relativism, we will find ourselves walking in a gospel path, in a gospel way. I'm running out of time. Evangelism, tell people they're wrong so that you can be right and just shower them with guilt if you're a moralist. If you're a relativist, uh, you don't do evangelism. That's your business, not mine. The gospel way says you're lost and you need to be found. Jesus died and rose from the grave to save you from your sins if you'll only accept that gracious gift. I'm here to tell you today, you can't earn it, but you do need it. And if you haven't ever asked for it, today's a good day to do it. Today's a good day to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and become a gospel-centered person that's part of a gospel-centered church. And if you've never made that decision, it's the most important decision you've never made. And it's the most important decision you'll ever make. And if you're not going to do it today, you need to be talking to someone who can walk you down this gospel path so you can make it soon. Let's have an invitation song.